Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say. All right, so uh, I grew up, uh, we had, I don't know if you guys remember this, some of you are old enough to remember this, we had a black and white TV and it had uh, UHF and VHF channels. And uh, for those of you who don't remember, uh, back in the day they had a lot more kids and it was because they didn't have remote controls and they needed somebody to get up and change the channel. So, um, But one of the shows I used to watch with my mom was Matlock. We used to watch uh, Perry Mason and uh, Matlock, and basically the premise of Matlock is he, would, he was a defense attorney, and while he was defending uh, the person he was trying to get off, he was always trying to investigate and see who actually did it. And there would come a point in the show where the person who actually did it would be on the stand, and in the questioning they would figure out that that is actually the guilty person. And then they could say the person that was actually accused is innocent. They're free. Also, when I was a teenager, uh, there was a big trial that was on the TV a lot. I don't know if you guys remember the O.J. Simpson trial. Remember, uh, see if you guys remember this. If the gloves don't fit, I just remember watching that as a teenager and thinking, my gloves don't fit when I'm wearing like food prep gloves on top of my hands either. But anyways, when we think of a courtroom and people being accused and, and acquitted, really ultimately all throughout Romans, we have that courtroom imagery of what it looks like to be accused. And throughout Romans 8, we see this imagery all throughout. At the beginning of Romans 8, it says, therefore, is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, believers no longer stand condemned, but rather have a new identity. So in this series on identity, we've been talking about how our identity isn't found in our job, It's not found in our marriage. It's not found in our sexuality. It's not found in our money. It's not found in our status. It's not found in anything else. Our identity is defined by Jesus Christ. Because through Jesus Christ, we have a new life. We have a new identity. We have a new purpose. And in Romans 8, we have a new spirit, the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. So we have two weeks left in this series, and today we're going to be studying verses 31 to 34, and bed rather than before the sermon, but I'm going to read them again just in case you weren't paying attention. So what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son but gave him for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Let's pray. God, in the courtroom of life, we are so thankful that you intercede for us. As Satan brings his accusations that you intercede for us. Lord, as we sung, it's not through our strength, it's not through our goodness, it's not through our deeds, but it's through Christ in me, Christ in us, the hope of glory. So we thank you for that, Lord. We pray that as we read your word today, that it will change us. Lord, we come into this room with many different experiences, some encouraged, some discouraged, some joyful, some, some sorrowful. And as we open your word, it meets each of us exactly where we need to be met. 
And so we pray that you'll speak through your word today. In your name we pray. Amen. So Paul opens verse 31 with this. What then shall we say in response to these things? Now, a lot of times when Paul writes these things, he's doing two things. One, he's pointing to what he immediately said and also pointing back to all that he has said throughout this book. But I want to rewind to last week and look at what he just said. What things did he just say? Last week we looked at verse 28. And we know that in all things, and we talked about how God works all things For the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. One more. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So what are these things that Paul is talking about in verse 31? Well, he's talking about... That God works all things together for our good. That God chose us before the foundation of the world. That God is conforming us to the image of Christ. That's sanctification. We're becoming more and more like Jesus. That, that we will bring glory to God and that our salvation is secured. And we're going to be talking about that le- next week. That we're chosen, called, justified. And our glorification is certain because of the finished work of the cross. So Paul says, in response to all these truths, what do we say? And so his answer is to ask five questions. Feels like maybe he learned a little bit from Jesus. He answers by asking questions. First, who can be against us? Second, will not God graciously give us all things? Third, who will bring charges against us? Fourth, who then is the one that condemns? And five, who can separate us? Now, Paul doesn't directly answer each of these questions because a lot of times the answer to the question is right in the question itself. Let's look at the first one. One, if God is for us, who can be against us? What if Paul said, without putting the phrase there first, what Paul just said, who can be against us? Would he have an answer? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Paul had an abundant amount of enemies, not just Satan and the devil, but Paul was arrested. He was put on trial. Twice he was shipwrecked. There were plots to discredit him and even execute him. One time, a group got together to execute him and stoned him and thought he had died and left him for dead. And many times he was brought in, put on trial and beaten and told to not tell others about Jesus. Does Paul have enemies? Absolutely. Could he say who can be against us? He could list a number of people. Do you have enemies? Well, yes. I mean, we know Satan seeks to destroy us. And maybe you even have people in your life because of your Christianity that seek to destroy you. So what does Paul mean when he says if God is for us, who can be against us? Really, the key to interpreting this is the Greek there, the if. Really, it means more like since. In other words, since God is for us, who can be against us? I used to play pickup basketball, and there was this guy that was six six, very athletic, very good at basketball, quick, strong, and basically, if he was on your team, you were going to win, no matter what. And if he was not on your team, you're going to lose. And if he was not on my team, I usually had to guard him, and that's probably why we lost. But 
You just knew if he is on your team, you're going to win. Well, if God is on your team, who can stand against you? When you look through the, the, the story of the scriptures, we see this time and time again. In the words of John Stott, all the power of hell may set themselves together against us, but they can never prevail since God is on our side. When you read through the Old Testament, you see the Egyptian army closing in on the Israelites. And God opens the Red Sea, and as they cross, then he opens a way for the Egyptians to come, and he crashes the sea down on him. We see Goliath defying the Lord and mocking Yahweh. And David says, that's not right. And David, this boy that can't even put on the king's armor, goes up against Goliath is victorious because if God is for us, who can be against us? Jonathan and his armor bearer are, are approaching. They see this Philistine garrison. And Jonathan says, look, if, if they say this, if they say to come up, that means the Lord has given us the victory. And so the Philistines see him and say, come on up. And David and Jonathan, or Jonathan, sorry, and his armor bearer just go up. Kill the whole garrison. Have victory. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? There are so many examples of that in Scripture. I want to look at three today, just briefly. In Numbers 13, the Israelites are on the precipice of crossing into the Promised Land, the land that God had given them. And they send out 12 spies. And if you remember from childhood songs, 10 were bad and 2 were good. I'm trying to remember how they did that, you know. Back when you were a kid, you always learned. I didn't remember how the thing goes. I just remember 10 were bad and 2 were good. Okay, anyways. <laughs> So now you're not, that's, you're not going to remember anything else from the sermon other than I can't remember how to do those motions. But, so they went, and, and the ten come back, and they say, look, everything God said about this land is true. It's beautiful. There, there's all this wonderful fruit, and the land is very fruitful, and it's a wonderful land, and it's a beautiful land, and now we see why God promised us this. But have you seen the cities? They're fortified with walls. They have big armies. The people are like giants. They're huge. Caleb, who was one of the two that were good, said, we should go up and take the possession land for God, for we could certainly do it. But then the people rejected him. And in fact, they wanted to choose a different leader to take them back to Egypt where they were slaves. And Joshua stands up saying, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people with the land, because we will devour them. Why? Their protection is gone. It's interesting. The ten that were bad saw all the cities and the walls, and they said they're too well protected. But Joshua said their protection is gone. Why? Because God was with them. Because Joshua believed, as God is for us, who can stand against us? In fact, he says that. But the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Unfortunately, in this instance, the Israelites didn't believe that truth. That if God is for us, who can be against us? And they had consequences. Fast forward to Judges. Gideon started with an army of 32,000 people, and they were going to go up against the Midianites, who were 135,000 people. 
But God didn't want the Israelites to get cocky to say, well, we had 32,000, we had victory. And so God dwindles their numbers all the way down until they have 300 people. And they go 300 against 135,000. Why? Because if God is for us, who can stand against us? And so they're victorious. Second Kings 6, Elisha, the king of Aram, orders his men to go, to go capture Elisha. They find the city where he's at. And Elisha's servant wakes up and looks out and sees the city surrounded by armies. And he sees the city surrounded by armies. He's afraid. And he goes to Elisha. He says, what do we do? Look at the armies. In his word, he said, oh, no, my Lord, what shall we do? But Elisha knew if God is for us, who can be against us? He says, do not be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And you have to imagine the servant being like, it's two of us. What are you talking about? Elijah prayed and said, Open his eyes, Lord, that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked out and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around the city. God's army was there in the midst of them. And in fact, what God did was he blinded the army of Aram, and then he had Elijah lead them into Samaria, and then he opened their eyes, and they were surrounded by the army of in Samaria, and the military ruler is like, what do we do? We do we just kill them? And he's like, no, feed them and send them home. So they, they feed the army that came to capture Elisha. And I love, this, I love this summary statement. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. King Aram got the point. Now later, his son and some other kings don't get the point. But Elisha understood if God is for us, who can stand against us? See, often we look at our circumstances, we look at our lives, we look at the things that we're experiencing, and we allow those present circumstances to deceive us and say, we're in an impossible circumstance. But if God is for us, if He called us, if He justified us, if He's glorifying, if He's going to glorify us, then who can stand against us? The correct answer is, no one. But how do we know that he's for us? How can we say with certainty, God is for us? Back to Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Now I want to take a little detour here for this all things, because this is a verse that's often used by people that preach a prosperity gospel. that said God may, wants to make you Healthy, wealthy, and wise. He wants to bless you abundantly with earthly possessions. And if you ask for it, he will give it. But I don't think that's what it's communicating. When we go to Matthew 6, Jesus is teaching us not to worry. First, he uses the example of the birds. He said, if God takes care of the birds, how much more valuable are you? Then he looks at the flowers in the fields. And if God clothes them with beauty, how much more will he clothe you and he summarizes in verse 31 by saying, So do not worry. So what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. God will provide for our needs. So what are we called to do as believers? But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things, in that case, our needs, 
will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. See, we all have a lot of physical needs, food, clothing, shelter. We have a lot of emotional needs. But really, I think this verse is talking about our spiritual needs. It's saying God will give everything we need. He's called us. He's justified us. He's glorified us. And how do we know that He will give us everything we need? Look at the cross. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? The God we are questioning whether or not He will come through will give us what we need because He's already given us the most important thing. I love this language. Did not spare His own Son. It's actually the exact same language used when Abraham took his only son up to be sacrificed. And God provided a ram in the thicket. And God talked to him after and said, You did not spare your own son. God the Father did not spare his own son. Jesus was the ram in the thicket. He was the sacrifice. But gave him up for us all. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. In the words of Octavius Winslow, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Next week we're going to look at this a little more, but this word love is time and time and time again in Romans 8 is because of God's great love for us that He sent His only Son. So since God has already given the greatest and highest gift, His only Son, how can we doubt His generosity or providence? If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. Will not God graciously give us all things? Yes, He gives us everything we need. We're called to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to us as well. He provides our spiritual needs. We're chosen, called, justified, glorified. And then this third question, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. This imagery depicts a courtroom, and there's an accuser. But Paul is saying no one can bring any accusation. God is our judge and He already justified us. Our sentence has already been carried out by Jesus, paying the punishment for our sentence on the cross. We've already been justified. The guilty verdict has already been taken out on Jesus Christ. And there's no double jeopardy. We can't be tried again. No one can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen. And fourth, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Back to the courtroom. Who can condemn? No one. It's interesting. Throughout the Scriptures, we see this picture of of Satan accusing us, of being the accuser. We see multiple examples 
in the scripture of this happening. In Zechariah's vision, it shows Satan standing at the right side of the high priest accusing him. In Revelation 12, we see that now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of the Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters, that's Satan, who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. And it goes on to describe the triumph through the blood of the cross. See, Satan continually accuses us. The world is eager to accuse Christians, maybe groups and individuals. Maybe you experience it at work or, or in your family. Because of your relationship with Jesus, there are people that accuse us. But no matter who accuses us, we remember in Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No matter who accuses us, there is no condemnation. Verse 34, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. As Satan continually accuses us, Christ continually atones and, 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 and says on our behalf, He is forgiven. He is saved. Isaiah 50, He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? The answer is no one. As we go through these questions, what's coming is clear. This this courtroom picture of Satan, the accuser, continually trying to, to, to get in our head, continually trying to make us feel like we have to do something about our sin, but it has been already been done. Jesus Christ accomplished it. And what we continually do is turn back to him. But what if we could lose our salvation? What if we could lose that advocate? Well, we're going to talk about that next week, but I don't want to end with this. So this fifth question Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is no one. Nothing shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword. No, nothing. Paul says, as it is written, he quotes Psalm 44. For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered as we experience this persecution and hardship. There is still nothing that can separate us from Christ, even death. Verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And all these things, as we face troubles and hardships and persecution and nakedness and danger and even death, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Hooper Nikao. That's where I get the word Nike, which means conqueror. So that comes from the Greek there. So when you're wearing Nikes, you can be like, oh, conqueror. Hooper, I think it's best translated super. Because really, it's this sense that there's, there's more than just conquerors. There's this, you're, you're super conquerors. I was listening to a pastor this week, and he was talking about the difference between a conqueror and a super conqueror. And he didn't really have a lot of exegesis for it, but I thought his point was really well made, looking at the whole of Scripture. And this is what he said. He said, what do conquerors do? When the victory is done, they parade into the city, right? 
and they celebrate. And in Roman times, they would have this big procession where the conquerors would come into Rome. And first you'd have, you'd have the, you know, some of the, the military and then you'd have all the people that they had conquered process through there. And at the end would be the commander and everybody would cheer. This general has had victory. That's conquer. A super conqueror is already celebrating victory in the midst of the battle because he already knows it's won. That's the amazing truth that we have in scriptures is that we're more than just conquerors because the battle has already been won. The victory has already been finalized. One commentator translated it completely victorious. This phrase is also used in courtroom settings in the Greco-Roman world. When someone is declared victorious, they are, they are set free. They are not guilty. And so as we're surrounded by hardship, we can look to the end and know our victory is secure. No matter what we are facing. In the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. You look at your troubles and you go, they're not light and momentary, Phil. Do you know what I'm going through? This, this is not light. And this does not feel momentary. But when you look at these instances in light of the eternal glory that, that is being achieved for us, it far outweighs whatever we're going through in this very moment. So what do we do? We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. What, what Paul is saying here is, because we know the, the battle is already won, because we know we are victorious, because we know that we are more than conquerors, we fix our eyes on the end. <laughs> if you ever run a race, and you're getting near the end, and your legs hurt, your back hurts, and you're struggling to find breath, and you see that finish line, and there's a sense of joy, like, well... If you like running, maybe there's not the same sense of joy for you that it is for me. But for me, when I'm getting to the end, I'm like, that's the end. And I get excited because I know at the end, there's a trip to the ice cream store. (laughs) And this is way better than a trip to the ice cream store. But the point is, in the middle of the battle, in the middle of the fight, in the middle of the hardship, in the middle of the struggle, in the middle of the hardship, we can be more than conquerors because we don't just go, okay, I'm going to wait for the victory. We go, the victory has already happened. And so I can fix my eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of my faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The one who intercedes for us. When Chrysostom was brought before the Roman emperor, the emperor threatened him with banishment if he remained a Christian. And he replied, and I love this, you know, I have to get over the, the language a little bit, but thou, thou canst, did I get up there? Okay. Thou canst not banish me from, for this world is my father's house. The emperor replies, but I will slay thee. Nay. Thou canst not. And the emperor's like, yeah, I can. I just stab you. And then, what do you mean? I can't. For my life is hid with Christ in God. Okay, well, I'll take away your treasures. Nay, but thou canst not, for my treasure is in heaven, and my heart is there. 
But I'll drive thee away from man, and thou shalt have no friend left. Nay, thou canst not, for I have a friend in heaven from whom thou canst not separate me. I defy thee, for there is nothing that thou canst do to hurt me. Part of me wants to use that canst thing in my own marriage sometimes, but... But the point here is he's saying, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can threaten me with. Threaten to take away my stuff? Well, it doesn't matter. My, my, my true eternal blessing is in heaven. Threaten to take my life? It doesn't matter. My life is already hidden with Christ. If you take away my life, I get to go be with Jesus. You want to banish me? That's fine. I'll get to be with Jesus wherever you banish me. There's nothing you can threaten me with that causes me to worry because God is for me. Who can be against me there is nothing you can threaten me with that can hurt me see we are more than conquerors through christ because the battle has already been won the victory has already been declared declared and we get to walk in that victory every single day so remind us paul has five questions who can be against us no one Will God graciously give us all things? Yes, He will. Who will bring charges against us? No one can. Who then is the one that condemns? No one. Ultimately, Jesus is the one that condemns. So if we have a relationship with Him, we've already been set free. We no longer stand in condemnation. And who can separate us? No one. I, In my mind this week, was trying to think through what this looks like and the courtroom language made me think of the courtroom and when you watch these courtroom shows there's an accuser there's a prosecutor who's always trying to you know get the person who they think is guilty get them to confess they're guilty and to make sure they get the punishment they deserve but you also have a defense attorney And the scriptures say that Satan is our accuser, that day and night he goes before the Lord and he accuses us, but Christ intercedes for us on our behalf. And there's points in these courtroom scenes where they submit an exhibit, you know, exhibit A. And sometimes exhibit A is a, you know, is a gun that doesn't have the right DNA on it, or there's a letter, or there's, you know, exhibit A shows that someone uh, had an alibi. But as I was thinking through the courtroom scene and and Satan accusing us, I I thought of Jesus saying, I'd like to submit Exhibit A. And just going like this. Pointing to his hands. Pointing to his feet. Showing his side. Yes, Phil was guilty, but the punishment has already been paid. See, I know Satan has a lot to accuse me of. If he looks back at last week, he could point to, God, didn't you see that time where, where Phil responded in a short way to someone? Didn't you see that time where, where Phil sped when he was driving? Didn't you see that time where Phil did this or Phil did that? And Jesus could say, yeah, I saw it. But it's already been paid for. I died on the cross to forgive Phil of his sins. And therefore, there is now no condemnation for Phil, because he is in Christ Jesus. We sing a song. It's one of my favorite songs. We sing it often at North Park. It's before the throne of God above. And the third verse and fourth verse goes something like this. When Satan tempts me to despair, 
and tells me of the guilt within. That's Satan the accuser. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him, Jesus, and pardon me. See, the reality is that there's no one that can stand against us. God's provided everything you need for your salvation. No one can bring a charge against you. No one can condemn you. And no one can separate you from the love of God. Why? Because you are a super conqueror through Christ. You didn't do anything to achieve the victory which has been achieved. Christ did it himself. But that victory is guaranteed. It's certain. So no matter what we face in this life, we can go through going, okay, I know this is hard, but I have Christ. Because I have Christ, I know what my future holds. I can fix my eyes on him and know my finish line is certain. I can look forward to the end. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, next week we'll be looking at the end of Romans 8 where it talks about famine and hardship and nakedness and persecution and all these things that we may face. But the amazing truth is that none of those things could separate us from your love. That there's no condemnation. That as Satan, our accuser, continues to loft arrows at us, seek to make us focus on our sin, Lord, we know that you've provided a way of salvation that you've died on the cross, you've secured our victory. So we've been called, we've been justified, and Lord, use the past tense for glorified because you've already accomplished it. So we can long for the day where one day we will be glorified, where we not only will be saved from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but we'll be saved from the presence of sin. We'll spend eternity with you. And Lord, if there's anyone in here that doesn't have that certainty, that doesn't have that victory, we pray that they will today choose to give their life to you. Lord, help us as believers to walk in that victory each and every day, no matter what life, whatever, no matter what we face. In your name we pray. Amen.